Last weekend, my wife and I, we were away. Uh, just got a little time away on our own. We were actually visiting um, some friends who live in the Boston area. Um, last Sunday at this time, we were worshiping at, I think you'll get what I mean when I say this, we were worshiping at our second favorite church. Um, we were worshiping at Westgate Church in Weston, Massachusetts. I, Westgate has been my second favorite church for a number of years, um, in part because it's pastored by a really good friend of mine, a young man who I discipled when he was younger um, and who has been just doing a faithful work there for a number of years now, but also because it's just a, it's not a large band of believers, but in a, in a place in our country that's very spiritually dark, um, it is a thriving congregation of people who gather together to um, hear God's word and who love the gospel and who love to sing God's word um, with one another and to one another. And so uh, Kristen and I were really overjoyed to be able to worship with the saints at Westgate last Sunday. Um, but man, I'll tell you, it's just my second favorite church. And so I was driving to the building this morning and uh, walking around in this room praying over the chairs in this room as the band was rehearsing this morning, sitting through our first service, and I'll tell you, um, I am so excited to be with you, my favorite church, this morning. Um, we're going to be in James chapter 5, I'm looking at verses 7 through 12. Um, this summer, we've been walking through the New Testament letter by James to a group of churches in your Bible that's just called the book of James. Um, this book, it's composed by James, the half-brother of Jesus, and church history tells us that that particular James was one of the most influential and significant leaders in the early church. He was a well-respected teacher in the early church, and church history also tells us that James was one of the first martyrs in the early church. He was put to death on account of the faith that he had in the Lord Jesus. He was put to death on account of the ministry that he was responsible for on behalf of the Lord Jesus. And man, that just strikes me as a really significant reality that I've mentioned before, but that I don't wanna miss, right? And so let's hold on to this together even as we get started this morning. I mean, think about what Jesus had to do in order to persuade his half-brother that the message that he proclaimed and the life that he lived was worth dying for, right? Think about like James, the half-brother of Jesus and all the things that he saw his little, James, little Jesus do. Think about all the things that you know, he was a part of in Jesus's life when Jesus was young. Think about even like the you know, little hints of sibling rivalry that might have existed there. What in the world did Jesus have to do to persuade James? that he was worth living for and even dying for. Well, just one simple thing. Jesus had to rise from the dead, right? Once James confronted the empty tomb of his risen half-brother, James was all in, right? He, whatever doubts or confusion or uncertainty he might have had about his half-brother, those things disappeared the moment that James beheld our risen Lord. And so if you're here this morning and you're looking for evidence that demands a verdict, right, if you yourself are unsure even about the truthfulness of Jesus's resurrection, I just say consider James. He was so convinced that Jesus rose from the dead that he died because of it. And I don't think we should ignore that. 
Now, as we'll see in a minute when I read this passage, James 5, 7 through 12, it's a passage that's primarily about patience, which means that what James is going to say about patience is really going to kind of rub against the grain of the way that our culture is shaping us. Because I think we could say with, with some confidence that patience is one of the least cherished virtues in our culture in 2022. Right? In our culture, we want everything fast. We want everything to be immediate. And we want everything to be easy. Right? And for the most part, because technology continues to advance at this breakneck speed, everything is getting easier and faster for us. But sadly, into our detriment, the faster and easier everything gets, the less and less patient we get. Let's just think for a minute about like, this dynamic and the way that like, our culture is forming us to be impatient people rather than patient people. And as we think about that, I'll just like, lay before you the, the life of my youngest son, Carson, who is nine years old. Right? Just think about Carson for a minute and the life that he has lived in his nine years. And so in Carson's nine years, he has never once had to leave his house in order to rent or purchase music, movies, or books, right? Instead, all of that for Carson's entire life has been instantly and immediately available to him, right? And so Carson has literally never been to a video store. Carson has literally never been to a music store. He's never had to endure the inconvenience of putting on pants and driving across town in order to walk around in a store to buy or rent an album or a movie. He's just never had to do that because those things for Carson have always been instantly and immediately and easily available. Easy and fast. Think about that, how that's forming us. In Carson's nine years, right, he has never once had to endure a Chick-fil-A drive through line that only had one lane. Right? It was more than nine years ago that Chick-fil-A decided, you know what, we're giving people waffle fries and chicken nuggets in three minutes or less, but we need to do it faster. It needs to be even easier. And so Chick-fil-A came up with that double barrel drive through lane, right? And so for all of Carson's nine years, he hasn't had to wait behind all of the cars in the drive through line. He's only had to wait behind half of the cars in the drive through line. Because Chick-fil-A, they want things to be easier and faster. Think about how that's forming us. In all of Carson's nine years, he has never once, if he's had a question that he couldn't answer, had to go to a library and open a physical book and look for that answer. Right, so for example, let's say that Carson wants to know who is it that won the 2015 NCAA basketball championship. Carson has not had to like go to a library and look that up. He's been able simply to say, hey Siri, who won the 2015 NCAA basketball championship? And Siri's told him the answer. Does anybody know the answer to that question, by the way? <laughs> Carson knows. <laughs> it was Duke. <laughs> Somebody knows, and they didn't want to say it out loud. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so Carson, he hasn't had to look that up, right? He hasn't had to walk to a library to find that information because all of that's just been fast and easy and immediate. And that's the direction our culture is going, right? Think about how that's forming us. And think about how impatient that makes us. Think about how that works against the grain when what the Bible teaches us is 
that one of the most powerful tools in the Lord's hand to grow us and to shape us according to his purposes is the tool of patience. Let's consider that in this passage together. I'm gonna give you the outline and then I'll read this passage for us and we'll walk through it together. Here's the first thing James is gonna tell us. He's gonna tell us, be patient for the Lord is coming soon. And then he's gonna tell us, be patient with each other for the Lord is the righteous judge. And then he's gonna tell us, be patient in suffering for the purpose and character of the Lord are good. That's what I aim to show you from this text this morning. Let's read it together now. James 5, verses 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Church, this is God's word for us today. Let's pray again before we dive into this. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to clearly comprehend the truths of this passage. And by your Holy Spirit, bring those truths to bear on our lives today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, James exhorts us, be patient, for the Lord is coming soon. Look back at verse seven. He writes, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers. All right, so the classic question, what is that therefore, therefore? Well, in the previous section, James has been discussing the way that riches and greed can creep into our hearts and destroy us, right? In that paragraph, there's a warning to Christians not to let a focus on earthly treasure consume. But then there's also almost like a prophetic rebuke against non-Christians, especially non-Christians who use money and riches and wealth to oppress other people. Now, Emery preached on that last week. I thought he did just a fantastic job. But it seems to me that as I look at these two passages together, that some of James's readers almost certainly were being oppressed by the rich. Right, the rich were treating them unfairly or unjustly, and they were suffering at the hands of rich people. And as they suffered, they wondered, like, when are these crooked, wicked rich people going to be brought to justice? And James answers, verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. 
But then James adds an illustration. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Now, farmers in Judea in James's time, and still today, right, they relied on two rainy seasons to grow their crops. The first rainy season came in the fall, immediately after farmers had planted their figs or their olives or you know, whatever else they were gonna plant. And then following that fall rainy season, they would do the hard work of fertilizing and weeding and everything else that is that farmers do, but then they would wait for the spring rains to come. And it would only be after the spring rains had come that their crops would be ready to harvest. James says that we're to be like those farmers, patiently waiting for both the early and the late rains to grow our precious fruit of the earth. And so our job is not to bring rain. Similarly, our job isn't to force justice on those who are unjust. Our job is to wait patiently for the Lord who does bring the rain. Our job is to wait patiently for the Lord who will return and establish justice. Now, one of the fears that we have to endure whenever we're experiencing suffering, whenever experiencing injustice, like we fear that those who are afflicting us are gonna get away with it. We fear that the wicked in the world are gonna go free. We fear that the evil will go unpunished and that we will suffer forever. But what James is pointing to here is the simple fact that that will not happen. He's saying that the coming of the Lord means we need never fear that the wicked will go unpunished. We might not see perfect justice in this life. We might not see all things made right in this life, but the just judge of the universe is coming and he will make all things right. He will, as Revelation 21 says, wipe every tear from every eye upon his return. He will make everything sad come untrue upon his return. He will execute his perfect justice. And so yes, perhaps we will suffer injustice in this life but we can stand in the hope that such injustice will not endure forever. In this life as we suffer, we might be like a child getting bullied on the playground at school. But because we know that the Lord is coming, it's like we can see that the principal is on his way. Right? The bully can't see that yet, but we can. And so we can know that he's about to get what he deserves. We can be sure that the principal is going to arrive and make things right. So we can be patient. James says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. But James adds that this patience, it's not just like sitting around and waiting. Though there's really an active dimension to it, which is why he goes on in verse eight to say this. He says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. The Greek word that James uses there, it's often used in contexts contexts of like a foundation for a city. He's saying a city is established upon a foundation. He's saying, build your life on this. Right, establish your heart on the reality that the Lord is coming again. Make the future coming of the Lord the thing that your whole life is built upon. And then don't let anyone move you off of that foundation. I think of this the way that I think of sumo wrestling. 
Not that I'm a big fan of sumo wrestling. I've seen just enough of it on YouTube to understand what it's all about, right? Two, usually very large men wearing something that resembles a woman's undergarment. Like they get in this circle together and they wrestle, but that doesn't mean they're trying to pin one another to the ground. And it doesn't mean they're trying to knock one another out. It simply means they're trying to move one another out of the ring, out of the circle that they start in. And the second one of these enormous men takes one step outside of that ring, the second he is moved out of that ring, the match is over. And so the aim of sumo wrestling right, is to do the very thing that James is telling us to do here. The aim is to stand firm, to establish not your feet, but your heart on the sure and certain hope that the Lord is coming again. James wants us to refuse to let our lives be moved off of the reality that Jesus will return and that he will make all things right. Now, in the 2,000 years since James wrote these words about the sure and certain return of the Lord, people have made one of two equal and opposite errors when they've thought about the sure and certain return of the Lord. <clears throat> the first error that some of us are guilty of, it involves obsessing over the details of how and when Christ will return. Like people who are guilty of this error will take the newspaper and the Bible and they'll try to line the two up to one another and they'll try to see how the descriptions in one confirm the details in the other and vice versa. And they'll try to infer from the newspaper or from the Bible the exact nature and time and occurrence of Christ's return. Now, the reason that's an error is because Jesus said very plainly that no one, not even himself, could know the day or the hour of his return. Like the way that Jesus will return and the time when Jesus will return, those things are unknowable by anyone but God the Father. That's what Jesus said. Secondly, it's an error because the Bible's not written to give us like a roadmap for the future. The Bible is simply written to encourage us to believe that Jesus will indeed come again and to bank our lives on that. The Bible is written for no other reason. And so I would just say, church, be very wary of any teaching or teacher that tries to pin down too precisely the time or the way that Jesus will return. Or that's a black hole that you can fall in that can lead you away from the truth. The second error, which is equal and opposite in the other direction, generally speaking, it involves just ignoring the reality of Christ's return. Many of us, Christians and non-Christians, walk through life with very little care or concern about the reality that Jesus will come again. We're too concerned with ourselves to be concerned about the coming of the Lord. We're too wrapped up in our own lives. We're too wrapped up in our own desires. We're too wrapped up in our own priorities to establish our hearts on the sure, certain, blessed hope that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. As a result, we're overwhelmed and anxious about the challenges of life in this world. As a result, we're lukewarm in our worship and in our evangelism. We're unserious about our spiritual disciplines. We're uncommitted to Christ's work in the world and to his people in the world. All of that revealing the fact that we generally functionally ignore 
the reality that Christ will come again. But here's what I know. We might ignore the reality of Christ's return now, but there will be a day when our returning Lord will be impossible to ignore. There will be a day when our resurrected king will be impossible for anyone to ignore. Right, the return of Christ is not gonna be this like insider thing, merely for those who are in-house so that Jesus' people can like float up into the air and join him in heaven. Now the return of Christ will be cataclysmic and it will be global. Jesus will come from heaven with a flaming sword coming from his mouth with the blood of his enemies on his robes. And in that moment, the foundations of the earth will shake and all will know that Jesus is king. All will know that Jesus is Lord of heaven and of earth. All will see him in his glory. All will bow before him and all will be judged by him. That's sobering. That should instill in us a measure of fear and trembling. If you don't know Jesus today, I hope that just lays very clearly before you what's at stake and what we're doing here today. Right now, Jesus in his kindness and his patience is waiting to return. But he will not wait forever. And if you're in the room today and you are a Christian, I hope that this illuminates for you what's at stake in the life that God has called you to live. Right? I hope that moves you to sincere worship. I hope that moves you to urgent evangelism. I hope that that moves you to authentic spiritual disciplines. And I hope it stirs up in you gratitude and praise. Because Christians know that the only way we can stand before the just judge of the universe is in his own blood. The only way we will one day stand before the king of heaven is in his righteousness given to us. Church, the return of our Lord, it's near. God has done already everything necessary to prepare for his return. Jesus has come to earth in his humble incarnation. He has lived the perfect life. He has already died the substitutionary death necessary to pay the full penalty of our sins. He has already risen victoriously from the grave. He has already ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. He has already sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. The only thing that remains on God's calendar is for his return to occur. James says, be patient, therefore establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's the first thing. Here's the second. James tells us, be patient with each other for the Lord is the righteous judge. And specifically, when James talks about this, he discusses the way that we should use our words, and because that's already been a pretty big topic in the book of James, I'm going to try to be brief, but let me just point out two things that James says about the way we should use our words. The first is in verse 9. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, occasionally, uh, occasionally, it's very rare, but occasionally, 
two of my four children at home will start to like argue or bicker with one another. I know that's shocking news to you. Um, but occasionally they'll start to argue with one another and I can almost always diffuse that argument simply by like walking into the room where they're arguing with one another. My mere presence is generally enough to like calm temperatures and smooth out whatever like contention there was. And that's because, generally speaking, my kids speak differently to one another when they know that I'm present. In the same way, James urges us, be patient with one another as you speak to one another. Do not grumble with one another. Why not? Well, he says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. Speak to one another like Jesus is about to walk into the room because he is. Right? The sure and certain imminent coming of our Lord it reshapes the way that we speak to one another. Second thing I should point out here, look at verse 12. James says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Again, James is talking about the way that we speak and he's actually quoting the teaching of his half-brother Jesus almost verbatim here. You might know that Christians for 2,000 years, some Christians, I should say, have read this verse and concluded that it's inappropriate for, for Christians to swear any oaths whatsoever. I don't think that that's true. We actually see the Apostle Paul even swear oaths in the New Testament itself, and so the Bible doesn't argue with itself that way. What James means here is that we should simply be truthful in what we say. There should be no distance between what we say and what we mean. We shouldn't say yes if we mean no. If we say no, we should mean no. There should be a transparency and alignment between what we mean and what we say. In other words, our speech should reflect a patient waiting on the Lord to return. And that should make it transparently truthful. Are there instances in your speech, perhaps subtle, where there is distance between what you say and what you mean? Right, when someone invites you to do something, do you sometimes say yes when what you really mean is maybe? Do you sometimes say maybe when what you really mean is no? Do you speak in half-truths? Do you tend to exaggerate the role that you played in something that went well? Or kind of understate the role that you played in something that didn't go well? Do you truthfully represent people who are arguing with you or disagreeing with you? Like in a dispute, like do you represent what they said and also how they said it so that you convey like the tone that they used and the force of that statement? Or do you sometimes suggest that they were blasting you when instead they were actually really speaking kindly? It's pretty easy for us to be guilty of a kind of verbal double-mindedness of saying something that isn't fully untrue, but also isn't fully true. James encourages us, show patience with each other, even in the way you speak to and about one another, because the Lord is a righteous judge. All right, the final thing here, James teaches, be patient in suffering, for the purpose and character of the Lord are good. In verse 10, he mentions the prophets, of the Old Testament, he says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, 
take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Then in verse 11, he mentions Job. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, James mentions the prophets because the prophets teach us that suffering is normal for God's people. The prophets suffered, all of them. There's not one Old Testament prophet who enjoyed a life of comfort and luxury. No, as they spoke God's word and did God's work, Right? They were persecuted, they were afflicted, they suffered. Maybe the cleanest example of that is the prophet Jeremiah. It was Jeremiah's job um, to tell the people of Judah that God was going to punish them for their sin by raising up the Babylonian empire. The Babylonians were gonna come in and destroy their homes and carry them into exile. Big surprise, nobody really wanted to hear the message that Jeremiah had to preach. And so, because nobody wanted to hear his message, everyone rejected him. Even his own family rejected him and betrayed him. He was beaten. He was put in stocks by a temple official. Eventually, he was imprisoned by the king. Ironically, not the king of Babylon who was conquering. No, the king of his own people, the king of Judah. And then, when everything Jeremiah said would happen started to happen, the people turned on him and blamed him again. And so they beat him again. They threatened him with death. And then they threw him in a pit, like in a well months. That's what it was like to be a prophet who spoke in the name of the Lord. Suffering was just part of that equation. James mentions those prophets because he doesn't want us to be surprised when we suffer too. Christians today, at least here in the West, we tend to act like the world is ending when we suffer even just a little bit. We assume anytime we endure any kind of trial, that God must be angry with us and trying to like smack us with some heavenly lightning bolts. Like every cancer diagnosis means that you haven't been doing long enough quiet times or something like that. Like every time things don't go our way, God must be punishing us for some unseen or unknown sin. But James wants to remind us what the whole Bible teaches. And that is that trials and suffering are normal for God's people. And he uses them to accomplish his purposes. That's why James mentions Job in verse 11, right? Job suffered greatly at the hand of the Lord, right? He lost everything. His sons and daughters died. His fields withered. His flocks dwindled. He developed boils all over his body. And so there's this scene in the book of Job where Job is scraping the boils off of his body with broken shards of pottery as he sits in the dust. And his wife comes to him and she says, just curse God and die. And Job's response is, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the whole book of Job is this testimony to the fact that God has a purpose for suffering. It's testimony to the fact that God's goodness shines most brightly when we suffer. The church father, Augustine, fourth century bishop of Hippo, he had this this saying about our view of suffering. He said, because Christians are finite, It means because we're limited, because we're small, because we can't see everything that there is to see. We can't know everything that there is to know. Because of our finitude, like our view of suffering is like a man who's looking at a stained glass window, but his face is mashed up against the glass. Right, so all he can see is like a part of a little piece of red here and a part of a little piece of blue here, and then maybe a leaded edge between them, but he cannot see the whole thing. 
God, by comparison, who is infinite, who knows everything, who controls everything, who is all-powerful, who is unchanging, who is unending. God, he not only sees the entire window, but he shapes the entire window. He knows that the best way to accent that blue is to put it up against the red. And so your face is mashed up against this thing and you can see only a little bit of it. But if you knew what God knew, you would see that his purpose in suffering is beautiful and his work in suffering is glorious. If we're gonna be patient, as the Lord calls us to be patient, we have to fix our eyes firmly on that. Suffering is normal. Look at the prophets. God has a purpose for our suffering. Look at Job. And we fix our eyes on these things and stand firm on these things. May we establish our hearts here for the Lord is at hand. He will one day soon come to set all things right. Now all week long as I've thought about and prayed over and studied this passage, um, God's really just kept bringing to my mind a really short Psalm, um, Psalm 131. Because what I've really been thinking about is like what does it look like to patiently wait on the Lord. And I think Psalm 131 like, illustrates that for us. It shows us what that looks like. Let me just read two verses of it to you. They'll be behind me. The psalmist, he writes this. He says, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. In other words, the psalmist is saying humbly, I know and I accept my place. God is God and I am not him. So I don't lift my heart too high. I don't raise my eyes too high. I don't occupy myself with things that are too great or too marvelous for me. What does the psalmist do instead? Verse two. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Think about this picture for a minute, would you? The psalmist doesn't say, like a nursing child with its mother is my soul within me. No, the psalmist says, like a weaned child with its mother is my soul within me. What's the difference between those two pictures? Well, the nursing child in the arms of his mother, he's content so long as he's getting what he wants. Right? So long as he is warm and dry, so long as his tummy is full of the milk that he craves, he will sit or lay quietly in his mother's arms because his mother has given him what he wants. However, as every mother knows, the second that child isn't getting what he wants, he becomes crabby and fussy and irritable he is not calm and quiet in his mother's arms. The psalmist says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child. Well, how does a weaned child sit in its mother's arms? Well, he's content simply to be in the presence of his beloved mother. He's learned to come to his mother and not look for something 
but he's learned to come to his mother and not demand. He's learned that his mother is not a means to an end. He's learned that his beautiful, beloved mother, that she will provide for his needs when she needs to, that she will give him not necessarily what he wants, not necessarily what he would have for himself at any given moment, but what he truly needs and when he truly needs it. The weaned child is content to take and to receive what the beloved mother gives, no matter what it is, and he is patient for her to give it when she will give it. Church, does that describe your heart before the Lord this morning? Are you a fussy baby? Impatient, demanding, discontent? Or are you the calm, quiet, patient child? Trusting that you will be given what you need when you need it, even if that's trial or suffering for a season. May the Lord calm and quiet our souls. May he make us content. May he help us to trust in his character and in his purposes. May he make us patient. Pray with me. Lord, we ask this morning that you would calm and quiet our souls within us. We ask this morning that you would make us like weaned children in your arms. We ask that you would cultivate in us faith in your character, in your attributes, in your purposes so that we might patiently wait on you and gladly receive from you all that you give to us. Good or bad, light or dark, happy or challenging. May we trust that you know what is best and may we wait patiently for you to give us what we need. We pray that in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.